Hi, my name is Jonas. I'm a PhD researcher in the ML4Q project and you're listening to ML4Q&A, a show where members from the Meta and Light for Quantum project answer questions about their work in the project, their research and the future of quantum. In today's episode, I'm talking to Martino Calzavara. He is a PhD researcher in the ML4Q project studying thermal cycles and ultra-cold Bose-Einstein condensates from a theoretical point of view and also looking forward to use neural nets and artificial intelligence in order to do so. We will also talk about the fattest Schrödinger cat ever made and him moving to Germany and settling down here. So welcome, Martino. Thank you. So before we talk about the work that you are doing now in the ML4Q project, let's talk a little bit about your past. So originally you studied in Italy in the city of Padua, which is in the northern part of Italy, and you investigated dark solitons and also graphene from a theoretical point of view. So maybe let's talk a little bit about that. What are these topics actually and what did you do? So for the, uh, my bachelor thesis, I worked on uh, solitons in the um, Gross-Pitayevsky equation, which is uh, a model, a very simple model that you can use to describe a system of cold atoms, uh, which are, by the way, also the, the kind of system on which I'm working right now. And uh, yeah, so in, in practice, I investigated this kind of uh, solitons, which are solution to this uh, Gross-Pitayevsky equation, which are traveling waves. Actually, they can be found also in other systems which are perhaps less exotic than a gas of cold atoms. Uh, I mean, uh, solitons can be also found in shallow waters, uh, stuff like that. Then I also worked in, um, on graphene for my master's degree. That was uh, harder, I have to say, because uh, you start to play with some more complicated models. But uh, I mean, it's also interesting. While finishing his master's, Martino had not made a decision yet whether to do a PhD or not. So let's find out how he actually decided to make a PhD and how he found out about the Quantum Control Institute in the ML4Q project in Germany. Just after my, my master's degree, I wasn't really sure about uh, what to do. And that was a problem like uh, that I carried uh, from just after my bachelor. Because I mean, um, in the end, uh, I didn't start physics, to study physics, because uh, I had uh, a clear, a very clear idea in my mind of what I would have done as a job later on in my life. Uh, I did that more out of curiosity, let's say, and uh, as a challenge also to see if I could do that. So that's, That could be good, but uh, that has also the, the counter effect that uh, at some point you have to decide what to do, mm -hmm. what to do, you know. So right after my, my master's degree, I reflected for a long mm -hmm. time and I decided that perhaps I wanted to do something more applied, we could say, with respect mm -hmm. to the things that I was uh, working with during my master's thesis. 
which was, uh, by the way, this study of these uh, theoretical models of uh, how interactions works uh, in, uh, in graphene. So I started to look around a little bit and, um, you know, looking for something that could uh, bring together some interesting aspects of physics. The true reason why I started physics was, of course, to learn and understand quantum physics. So finding a job in which I could uh, apply that kind of, um, of knowledge would have been uh, wonderful. So I started to look uh, into that direction. And uh, it was pretty fortunate that uh, around that time, so in November of 2019, Professor Calarco came to, to give a talk in Padova. The stuff he was uh, talking about, which is quantum control, really, really looked like the right thing for me. So since uh, Professor Calarco is a, uh, has been a, at least a close collaborator of uh, another professor, uh, which uh, now works in Padova, which is uh, uh, Professor Montanzero, I mean, through him, I, I asked him uh, if uh, uh, there was any open position in uh, Professor Calarco group. And, uh, you know, then uh, I, I applied for this position, came here, did the interview, and now here I am. <laughs> yeah, that's good to have you. So um, that's actually quite interesting. So uh, Professor Calarco was coming to that uh, university in Italy and giving a talk. So what was he talking about? What were the topics that he was covering? Do you still remember? Yeah, yeah, I do remember. Uh, the title of the article was something like the fattest uh, Schrodinger cat mm -hmm. uh, ever made, <laughs> which um, yeah, more in practice is, you know, the problem of controlling a system made out of uh, many atoms. So in, in that case, uh, many means uh, 20, I think. The task was to, to drive the system from a certain ground state to another one. But of course, you don't want to do it uh, slowly, which will be the uh, most easy way to do that. Because uh, after all, if you move slowly enough, you can start from any ground state and end up uh, in, uh, by tuning correctly the parameters of the model, you can end up uh, in another state that you want. But the problem is that that takes a lot of time. And uh, all quantum optima optimal control is about is uh, uh, speeding up that process, you know. So uh, instead of performing this adiabatic transformation, the idea is to look for some smart way of doing that uh, fast. So, and uh, Professor Calarco usually explains that uh, by um, showing how a waiter can uh, bring around a, a tray full of uh, wine glasses, uh, you know, without spilling uh, any of it, but, and, uh, you know, not being fired for being too slow to serve mm -hmm. the clients. So it's something that uh, everyone can relate to in some, yeah. in some sense. That's true. Okay. And then you were, I guess, quite impressed by this talk and that's how you basically came. Did you know at that point in time that, he's, uh, that, he, uh, that his institute was in Germany or did he, uh, did he tell that? Yes, I did. <laughs> okay. I didn't know, yeah. So you basically knew at the point where you um, applied that uh, you would have to go abroad to mm -hmm. basically join his work group. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, that's quite a big decision to make, right? So It is. I mean... Well, it didn't look that big uh, back uh, back at the time, but uh, yeah, now that I'm, I've been living here for six months, I realized that uh, that has been a very big step uh, in my life. Perhaps the the biggest one that I that I took up to now. So, so what was your first impression when you came to Jülich? So you told that you were invited for this uh, interview, mm -hmm. and then you came here. Uh, what was your first impression? 
I found it uh, very impressive because you know the entrance is quite uh, <laughs> this large road with the signs and everything. I mean, I, I was impressed, I have to say. And um, I had this uh, nice interview to talk with uh, all the people in, in the group, which back then uh, it, uh, it was uh, February uh, 2020. So, uh, you know, we, we didn't have uh, all the, the kind of complications that yeah. <laughs> we have today because of Corona. So um, everyone was at the office uh, mm -hmm. working. So I had the chance to, to talk with uh, everyone in person. That was nice. I had a, a very good impression of this group, uh, which b back then uh, counted uh, uh, very few PhDs because uh, I think they were three back at the mm -hmm. time. Uh, but now um, we are much more than that because uh, we have been uh, hmm. expanding a lot. <laughs> yeah, which is probably also part of the uh, ML4Q project, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, just to phrase it once correctly, so now you're working in the Institute for Quantum Control led by Professor Kalako, which is working on techniques from quantum optimal control with applications in few and many body systems for the development of quantum technologies, which is quantum computing, quantum communication, quantum simulation, and also quantum sensing. That's what I took from the website. <laughs> um, how is it actually probably different also from the work that you were uh, doing in Italy? Like how is the, how's the work life probably different? Of course, Uh, there are differences now because of the pandemic, mm, but probably also uh, in other regards, life is, or work is a little bit different. There are also many differences because, you know, uh, back in Padova, I was a, a student mm. and here instead I'm a PhD student, which is uh, kind of different. Mm. So um, I don't know how it works in Germany, but mm. usually like if you're a master student working on your thesis, you don't have an office. Mm -hmm. in Italy, so it was pretty nice to mm -hmm. have one <laughs> here. <laughs> and um, now, you know, the big difference uh, is more on the side of the personal life, I would say, because uh, um, back in Italy, I, um, I lived uh, with my parents still, mm -hmm. uh, also during the, the years of uh, university, mm -hmm. because uh, uh, so Padova is my hometown and uh, I grew up there. So uh, and I also went to the university there. So Mm. It didn't really uh, made much sense to me to to move away, mm -hmm. and um, yeah. So the big difference is now that uh, I have to to care about uh, everything on my own. <laughs> yeah. That's so true. you know uh, that's the big thing because uh, that uh, takes away a lot of time and energies, and uh, you know to start to uh, to put that uh, together with. Uh, Uh, the new responsibility due to the job itself, uh, you know, the, the, that's challenging. That's a, a big difference. Yeah, that's true. I also remember when I was uh, in Italy, most of the people that I got to know actually uh, lived at their parents' house. I think it's quite normal because you have big families and then usually the families also uh, weigh more together than probably here. Uh, something else that I also realized back then was um, most of my colleagues, they were actually uh, basically taking some or bringing something to the institute to eat from home. So they didn't uh, go to the canteen at the university. Mm -hmm. I don't know how it is in Padua, but... Uh, <laughs> it depends because, you know, uh, 
there are several good canteens in Padova. You have to walk a little bit to, to get there. So, I mean, there is always that option. Um, personally, I always ate uh, at, the, at the canteen when mm -hmm. I had to, to stay at the university in the, in the afternoon and stuff like that. Otherwise, I would just uh, uh, go back home and have lunch mm -hmm. with here in Jülich we have the, the See Casino, which is the canteen yeah. of the research center. How is it here? It's How do bad. you like it? Not, <laughs> it's bad. not bad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, perfect. Uh, <laughs> this is actually uh, quite positive feedback from, from an Italian <laughs> for, the, for the See Casino. <laughs> I mean, uh, also the pizza is uh, not terrible, I have to say. I, I, <laughs> I eat it sometimes, so. So thumbs up to the uh, canteen here in Jülich. Not the pineapple one. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's strange. <laughs> Not right? the pineapple one. Okay. Um, but okay, that, that was a little bit about the uh, campus life. So um, maybe let's talk also a bit about the, um, about the work that you are in right now. So what are you doing now? Let's say, first of all, that we are a theory group, okay? Mm -hmm. But we work a lot uh, in collaboration with some group of uh, experimentalists, especially in Europe. Uh, what I'm, we're trying to do in collaboration mm -hmm. with this group of experimentalists is to uh, build a, let's call it a quantum refrigerator. <laughs> the, the platform on which we're working is uh, uh, called Atoms, as I was mm -hmm. telling you before, which means that basically you take this, uh, this gas mm -hmm. of uh, alkali atoms and uh, you cool it down uh, at a very, very, very low temperature. So we're talking about some hundreds of nanokelvins. So that's even way colder than the universe, right? Yeah. It's probably one of the coldest spots in the whole universe. <laughs> yeah, indeed. I mean, um, back in the 90s, I think that this kind of systems reached the, the, really the, the record for low temperature. But I don't know if that still holds to nowadays, but um, it's still pretty cold, pretty close to, to the minimum temperature that you could achieve at all. So uh, what happens to these kind of systems when you cool them down? They condense. So the, these atoms, in our case, are bosons, uh, which means that they... So all particles are either fermions or bosons. And uh, that tells us something about how do they behave uh, when they are put together in a system, you know. So bosons usually uh, want, uh, let's say, to stay closer one to another. They, they like each other. So when you cool them down enough, uh, they condense and they form a so-called Bose-Einstein condensate. And uh, you can do a lot of stuff with this kind of systems. So in these years, the, the experimentalists in general have been very successful in implementing uh, some very refinite control techniques on this kind of system. So you can even tune the, the interaction strength with which these atoms interact. So you can really explore a wide range of uh, physical parameters which characterize the kind of, these kind of systems. So um, as I said, a quantum refrigerator, what does it mean? So it means that we would like to take one of these Bose-Einstein condenses made out of cold atoms and uh, uh, implement, let's say, a thermal cycle, just like the one that makes the refrigerator in our houses work. So basically the idea is to uh, use the compression and the expansion of a part of the system 
to drive the heat from uh, from a cold reservoir to a hot mm -hmm. reservoir and uh, this way you know uh, cooling down the cold reservoir in order to do that as uh, thermodynamics teach us we have to do work and this work is uh, uh, performed on this kind of systems by shining lasers on top of these clouds of uh, mm -hmm. atoms and uh, so this laser can uh, in practice move around uh, these atoms they are they project uh, an external potential how we say it on uh, on this system. And uh, this potential can take the shape of uh, a well, the size of which can be um, compressed or decompressed so that uh, we can, uh, at least in principle, achieve this kind of uh, thermal cycle. How big is this well? Some hundred uh, micrometers. Okay, so a very, very, very small, small spot. Yeah but probably also very few um, atoms, right? It's about 10 to the 3, 10 to the 4 atoms, something like okay. that. Yeah, not a lot, but uh, it's, a, it's a mesoscopic system. Mm -hmm. uh, when you start to do thermodynamics in this kind of uh, small uh, systems, with uh, quantum mechanics playing a big role, you know, interesting things may start to happen. Because, uh, so we are pretty sure that uh, when you have a small enough number of particles and you do thermodynamics, you should start uh, to see uh, fluctuations in the thermodynamics. The usual thermodynamics is derived under the assumption that the system is infinite in practice, okay? So when you relax that assumption, strange things start to happen. Mm -hmm. So there are fluctuations uh, in the usual, uh, with respect to the usual laws of thermodynamics. So that could be something that could happen. But also when you start to test the, the thermodynamics at this different uh, length scale and uh, this very low temperature with these uh, strange laws governing the, the atoms, who knows what uh, you can find out. So, I mean, that's, I think that's the main point. Uh, we're interested in testing the laws of nature in a new setting and see if uh, something interesting happens. Mm -hmm. I think that's uh, the main point. So that's, uh, that's then probably a pretty new kind of system which uh, has not been uh, no. explored so much yet. Actually, it's not that new because uh, they started to do experiments on the, mm -hmm. uh, this kind of stuff uh, in the 90s. So it's uh, fairly understood. But uh, as far as I know, the trying to uh, implement a thermal cycle in this kind of system is something that uh, was not done before. So um, just for, for me to understand it a little bit better. So uh, the atoms have to be in a very small spot. Mm -hmm. Um, how is that actually working? So how do you keep them in a spot? Are they are they charged? Are you using ions or is it? No, they are uh, they are neutral. So you can keep them in place with uh, some uh, devices which are called uh, magneto optical traps. Mm -hmm. So in practice, you can confine them using a magnetic field. You are basically starting off with a let's say kind of hot uh, gas cloud, which is probably at room temperature when you let the gas flow inside. And then you have probably different kind of techniques which you use in order to uh, mm -hmm. cool down the system. Yes. So um, unfortunately, I don't know really all the details because, uh, you know, I'm yeah. not an yeah, experimentalist. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, definitely they, I mean, it's not uh, by any means trivial problem the one of cooling down this kind of system at so low temperature. But you know, there are some problems like, uh, the, so the final stage is called mm -hmm. uh, evaporative cooling. 
So in which, in practice, they usually describe this kind of procedure as very similar to the process of cooling down your mug of coffee mm -hmm. by uh, blowing uh, some air on top of it. So what happens is, is that the, the hotter atoms go away. And in this way, you can lower the energy and therefore the effective temperature of your system. The problem is that in this way, you lose part of these atoms. So at a certain point, you have to stop. And you know, that's another cool thing that could happen, is that if this uh, kind of uh, procedure works, so we can manage to cool down at least uh, one part of the system to a temperature lower than the one that we started uh, uh, at the beginning. And uh, we do so without losing uh, atoms. Well, that could be also an important thing because, you know, you, know, you find a way to, to cool down even further a system which is uh, already very, very, very cool. So without any loss. Yeah, that's really amazing. I mean, in our lab, we also do low temperature. We just call it low temperature, not ultra low temperature. Uh, but the lowest temperature that we are reaching are in the millikelvin regime. Mm -hmm. So that's still orders of magnitude higher. And that's already quite an effort to get a system cooled down to these uh, temperatures. But uh, I think with these uh, ultra cold atom gases, that's even way more advanced than uh, than the stuff that we have to do in order to cool down our systems. So there's probably uh, quite a lot of, of experimental effort behind this. But of course, you are rather studying the uh, theoretical side mm -hmm. of the system yeah. also. So how does that work? I mean, when you when you want to simulate, let's say, 10 to the power of three or four Uh, atoms, you probably don't do that on your laptop, right? <laughs> depends. Uh, sometimes I do. Really? That's <laughs> Because, possible. I mean, uh, it really depends on what you want to see from your system. So what you want to test uh, about your system. Depending on that, you can choose a model which is uh, more complex or less complex and therefore more computationally expensive or less. So the basic thing, the most basic thing that you can do to simulate the dynamic of this kind of system, which is what we're doing now, is using the Gross-Pitayevsky equation, which is the one that we were talking about before that I was studying during my bachelor. And uh, so this is uh, an equation which describes this uh, collection of atoms in practice as a quantum fluid. In the end, it's just uh, an equation which looks like uh, the one of uh, hydrodynamics once mm -hmm. you get rid of the dissipation part, which of course uh, in this kind of quantum system doesn't happen because you have a superfluidity. Uh, that's the most easy thing that you can do, but then you can go up in difficulty hmm. <laughs> as much as you want because uh, I mean i instead the most complicated thing that you could uh, do is uh, you know simulating the full dynamics with uh, its particle described with uh, its own orbital and there are methods to do also that but uh, it becomes a little bit challenging when you deal with uh, you know 10 to the fourth particle that's close to not being doable so it's probably not even with a supercomputer possible to do that right yeah, yeah i would say really so difficult. i mean uh, in the other cases you probably also make use of the fact that you have some symmetries in your system like what you told before that you have bosons which can then also become a condensate mm -hmm. and then probably behave like one big quantum system instead of exactly yes same at the uh, systems at zero kelvin actually is mm -hmm. true But of course, you're, you're not at zero Kelvin, so 
so how does that actually look in practice? Like um, what kind of software are you using when you simulate? Is it like, uh, do you have to use a C or something that is very efficient on a numerical side or are you rather on the Python side of the spectrum? For the simulation that I did, I used a, a C++ library, which is called QEngine. So you have to deal with uh, C++. This can be, you know, time consuming on its own. It's not like Python, but it's faster. So there are, I mean, many, many, many implementation like of, uh, um, of GP solvers and uh, optimal control of GP that you can find on the internet uh, developed by uh, many different groups. But yeah, yeah, if you want to have something that is uh, efficient, uh, you have to go on something like, uh, yeah, like uh, written in C, C++, something like that. There are, there is some stuff written in MATLAB, mm -hmm. which is very easy to read, easy to understand, easy to write and everything, but usually you cannot be as efficient as you could be in uh, C or stuff like that. Python is uh, somewhere in between because in the end, uh, if you use the correct libraries, like uh, SciPy, NumPy and that kind of stuff, in the end, of the, the low-level computation are handled by efficient kernels, so the, the performance are not uh, so different. And actually, maybe, after all, maybe that could have been a wiser choice because, uh, yeah, you know, when you start to open up the code written by someone else and it's written in C, that's going to be painful. <laughs> yeah, I remember. Whereas maybe in Python, it's a little bit more. And probably MATLAB is also a bit of a problem when it comes to uh, licenses, right? I mean, probably you yeah. have a li license if you need one, but I mean, it's always a mess to get a license. And then Yeah, if you're a student, usually it's not a big problem. But yeah, uh, later on, uh, it, that could be the case because uh, that depends really on the institution where you're working at. So. Yeah. Um, at the moment where you try to get on a cluster because you have more difficult computation then you probably need to get to some programming language like C, right? Mm. So you're also using uh, cluster computers or is everything that you do so far basically done uh, with one station, a, a computing station? At the moment I didn't really run super intensive jobs. I ran a couple of them but uh, the um, a workstation was enough to, mm. to handle them. I, I mean, it was still a workstation with many mm. cores, 32 cores or something like that. So mm -hmm. you still have to parallelize it somehow. But at the moment, yes, I didn't really have the need to go on a cluster mm. or something like that. But I mean, that could happen quite soon. So uh, did, you, did you also change the library now or is it uh, the one in, in C, which are you, uh, C++ which you are using right now? Uh, actually, the funny thing is that uh, the simulation part of the project is, I wouldn't say finished, mm -hmm. but uh, we sort of uh, converged on a solution, uh, which is actually um, a theoretical one. I mean, it doesn't uh, use a numerical optimal control. It's obtained by an analytic technique, which is called the shortcuts to adiabaticity. We ran some tests for, to see if the, this kind of solution was uh, robust enough, and uh, it looks like it is. So now actually we're focusing on more practical aspects on how to implement that kind of stuff in a, in a mm. true experimental setup. 
so that requires a lot of collaboration with the experimentalists and a lot of discussions yeah, on how does. to realize the, the steps uh, and then moving on step by step. So uh, how did you find that analytical solution? Is it done on a whiteboard like we, like we did it when we studied physics at one point in time? Or are you using uh, things like Mathematica or other tools to basically optimize that? I use the internet because <laughs> <laughs> I ah, found okay, it uh, okay. in a paper. Mm -hmm. in a very nice paper and uh, that did uh, exactly what uh, we wanted it to do so that was enough <laughs> oh, perfect. we were lucky <laughs> yeah so literature research is also yeah. something that one should be capable of then i have a little bit of a, of a game you know every uh, episode is kind of an experiment in itself mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, i call it one or two so the idea is i have 10 pairs of two different words uh, and you always have to choose the first or the second one. And it's only fun if you do it fast. So don't okay. try to think too long about it. Uh, go with it quickly. Okay. Um, uh, let's start off. Uh, so the first one is theory or experiment? Theory. Simulation or symbolic? Simulation. Pasta or pizza? Pizza. <laughs> but that's hard. <laughs> Feynman or Einstein? Feynman. Fermion or Boson? Boson. Panettone or Pandoro? Another very, very hard one, Panettone. <laughs> okay, uh, Graphene Qubit or Spin Qubit? Graphene Qubit. <laughs> spin Qubit or Majorana Qubit? Majorana Qubit. Tesla or Gauss? Tesla. Tesla or Fiat? Fiat, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and because you said you like Panettone so much... Ooh, now I'm thrilled. <laughs> I brought a little one, the panettoni. Oh my god, thanks. <laughs> so, uh, That's really nice yeah. of you. <laughs> if you. If you want, we can have it right now. I also brought some plates. Why not? So, of uh, course. Everyone who's listening has to deal with the fact now that we will eat something during <laughs> the conversation. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, so for everyone who is listening to that and doesn't know what a panettone is, you should go ahead and search for that on the internet. Um, I heard when I was in Italy still that mm -hmm. there's always a competition going on between Panettone and Pandoro. There and is. there's always the question which one is sold more for Christmas. Uh, and it's always very close to 50-50, right? I don't really know. It's here at this time of the year. Uh, me and my friends have uh, some uh, arguments about that. Mm -hmm. And they are pretty heated ones. So that means that there is some, you know, <laughs> some division. <laughs> yeah, that could be very close to 50-50. Oh, thank you very much. You're welcome. Unfortunately, I don't have the uh, coffee which would fit to that now. Yes. <laughs> Hopefully this pandemic situation is going to uh, end very soon <laughs> so that we can kind of move back to the, to the original life of a scientist, let's say. So uh, are there any interesting conferences very soon? Or is there probably a lot of conferences are also uh, digital now? Oh. Yeah, actually, I attended a very interesting one, uh, which was on uh, non-equilibrium thermodynamics. Uh, it was uh, quite interesting because uh, the guy that invented the, that uh, solution we were talking about mm -hmm. was there and he gave a talk. And um, so now he, as far as I understand, so uh, his name is um, Dolfo del Campo. So now, uh, as far as I understand, he's working on uh, uh, doing this kind of stuff, but in open quantum systems. I mean, bring it in, in the perspective of uh, implementing that uh, 
experimentally, but uh, what we're trying to do right now is quite challenging, but that will be at another level. <laughs> but I mean, that's interesting from a theoretical mm -hmm. point of view. Okay. Was there also some breakout session where you could have a conversation with him or was it rather only the talk and then... Actually, there was one. But uh, I could not. But maybe if he listens to the podcast, he can contact mm. you in some way. <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> By the way, are you interested in getting in contact with some people? So uh, who, who would kind of be interesting maybe for a collaboration or something like that? Is there anything that is maybe missing in your work or some contributions that you would be interested in? At the moment, I'm working also with uh, on a deep learning approach mm -hmm. to work on, the, on this practical problems related to the experiments hmm. so i mean uh, any input on that side will be very useful mm -hmm. you know but uh, i guess that uh, i think there is uh, so many people out there <laughs> yeah. working on deep learning and this kind of stuff that uh, mm -hmm. i could be easily be submerged though <laughs> yeah do, do you already have some uh, idea how this is going to be integrated? So I started to dive into the topic uh, a month or so ago. Mm. And so now we, um, we arrived to have a, you know, a good uh, candidate for the architecture mm. of the thing that we need to do, uh, which will be a convolutional one for the main part. But, you know, yeah, I, I don't really know much about uh, uh, machine learning in general. Mm. So I'm really entering that field right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, it's really vast. It's interesting in some sense, uh, in some other sense, uh, you know, it's more of a trial and error. But I mean, it's, it's fun, it's interesting. I mm. see why a lot of people get thrilled about that. So if there's anyone uh, listening who's totally submerged in the field of deep learning, he can probably get in contact with you. Um, so how can one actually reach you? Well, there is my email. Mm -hmm. uh, so that will be m.calzavara at uh, fz uh, um, dash, I think mm -hmm. it's Julish. Uh, yeah. Dot de. And of course, we will also put that in the show notes later on. Cool. And uh, yeah, I fear that's pretty much it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So people can contact you via email. This panettone is pretty good, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I think. Um, I think the bigger ones are usually even a bit better. Mm, I yeah. prefer them a little bit of more, but I mean, this is at least good for, for a start, right? Mm -hmm. To get into Christmas <laughs> mood a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they, usually the, the big panettone are more moist. Is there anything that you would like to uh, talk about, tell about a little bit? Just a, a quick impression of, uh, you know, how, uh, how you handle things here in Germany, because mm. it's, it's pretty different with respect to Italy. I mean, I, I'm also following a, a German course. It helps you a lot to, to, to learn uh, every new little bit of, of German in your uh, everyday life. It's very, very useful. But uh, <laughs> it, it looks to me, I mean, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but... Uh, it looks to me like you German like to uh, overcomplicate stuff. <laughs> and sense? it can be seen from uh, your language. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. I mean, a lot. I, I know that a lot of um, also native English speakers, they always say it's really annoying that we always put the verb at the very end. 
So you always have to listen until the very end of the sentence to know what, <laughs> what the person actually wants to say. <laughs> and yeah, of course, we also like to make sentences very long. And then also something that we like to do is we like to connect words to make them one word. So then it becomes really, really long. That's also quite messy. So uh, with yeah. that impression of the German course, <laughs> I think we, we uh, will end this episode. And I would like to thank you for your time and uh, for your impressions. And hopefully um, you get a lot of positive feedback also for the explanations. So from my point of view, it was quite clear. I understood and learned quite a lot. Um, and hopefully the listeners also did so. <laughs> okay, yeah, so thank you. Thank you very much for asking me to come. It was uh, very nice. I had fun. So This episode this time was recorded in the uh, Central Library in the Research Center of Jülich. But of course, the MFOQ is also located in different locations, which is Cologne, Aachen, Bonn, and partially also in Düsseldorf, I think. So we will also have some episodes from these uh, other facilities very soon.